Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day to those dads out there. Uh, give a special happy Father's Day to my dad, who's not here, but I'm assuming will be watching the service online, so happy Father's Day, Wes. Um, but I hope you, you dads have a great day. We are uh, finishing our Long Story Long uh, series. How many of you have felt like this has not been that short of a series, eh? It's a... This has been a long one, uh, but I've, I've quite enjoyed it. We, if you're just uh, joining us this morning, uh, we have been in the middle of a 13-week series, taking a couple of weeks off uh, for different events, uh, but our series has gone 13 weeks. We've been walking through the whole story of the Bible uh, in a 13-week period, and today we get to our last week, and we're going to be talking about the revelation this morning. And so the, your Bible ends with a book called Revelation, and I don't think there's a, bu- there's a biblical book that has been more uh, confusing and misunderstood uh, in history outside of this book. There's lots of questions, lots of ideas, lots of uh, just people staking a, their claim on what this book is about, what it's talking about. And I see, sorry, some junior highs leaving. If you're in junior high, um, they were like, Revelation, I'm out. Uh, <laughs> little do they know they're talking about Revelation in junior high conversations this morning. But if you are in grade six to eight, you can go out through those doors uh, where you will get uh, better answers than you'll find in here. So uh, the, revela- the Revelation, we're talking about the last book of the Bible. I've been really misunderstood. And uh, lots of ideas swirling. And, and we could do an entire 13-week series just on this book alone. And at some point in the future, I'd love to do a series just on the book of Revelation. But we're going to try and kind of bring some ideas together in the brief time uh, we have to cover it. Uh, so Revelation, gone wrong lots of times. People have made all sorts of predictions, ideas. Often people view Revelation as a prediction of future events that have yet to happen. One of the most important end times movements in America began through the preaching of William Miller, a veteran of 1812, the war. After intensively studying Daniel and Revelation, he reasoned that according to Daniel 8.14, there was to be 2,399 days from the decree to restore Jerusalem like it says in Daniel 8.14, until the sanctuary be cleansed. And that's, that's the phrase that's in Daniel. If the decree to Jerusalem was given in 457 B.C., and if one could calculate that each day symbolized a year, as it did in Ezekiel 4, verse 6, don't worry, there won't be a test on this, then the, consumption, the consummation would come 2,300 years later, which would be in 1843-1844. As the time approached, thousands were attracted to the movement. Eventually, Miller refined his calculations, announcing that Christ's return would come between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. When the dates that Miller set, out, set came and went without, without Christ's visible return, the group faced initial disappointment. The movement's leaders acknowledged that they had misunderstood the time, and then they recalculated to October 22nd, 1844. When this date also passed, many simply left the movement. Others argued that Christ had returned 
They'd been correct about the time of Christ's return, but not the manner of Christ's return. So, so he returned in a spiritual sense, but not yet in a physical sense. A woman named Ellen White, who experienced, uh, get, sorry, gathered a number of Miller's followers who adhered to the spiritualized view, and that group became to know, be known as the Seventh-day Adventists. In the decades that followed the failed movement of Miller, new dates for the coming Christ continued to be proposed. One group identified 1874 as the key date. But again, the year came and went without anything happening. A man named Charles Russell began pop- popularizing a view that Christ returned spiritually in 1874, inaugurating a millennial-drawn period that would climax with the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth in 1914. Russell spread his views by organizing Bible studies and producing literature through the Watchtower Tract Society. Sensing the imminent coming of the end, he proclaimed that millions now living will never die. The outbreak of World War I, get this, in 1914 generated much excitement among the followers because the thinking was that before Christ's return, there would be some kind of cataclysmic war. And so they saw this war as a, a good sign of what was coming. But Russell himself died in 1916 and never saw the war's outcome. In the decades that follow, his followers organized themselves as the, as the Jehovah's Witnesses, continuing to hold that 1914 had in some way still been a pivotal part of God's plan. And then there's a group called the Davidians, eventually led by Vernon Howell, who called himself David Koresh. And he argued that many New Testament references to Christ refer to a latter-day Messiah rather than to Jesus. For example, he insisted that the Lamb, who's talked about in Revelation, the Lamb that was talked about in Revelation would break the seals on the scroll that contained God's plan for the ages. It talks about in Revelation 5, verse 2, that that Lamb was not Jesus, but it was actually Koresh himself who was the Messiah. He also, climbed to be the, he also claimed to be the conqueror on the white horse and appeared when the first seal was broken in Revelation 6. And then there were allegations of polygamy and child abuse among this group and his followers, and some federal agents rallied uh, to come against them. On February 28, 1993, the Davidians resisted. They fought with the feds, and there was the shootout, and his, some of his followers died, and other people died. And Koresh attempted to understand the siege by correlating his experience with Revelation's account of the fifth seal, where it talks about people that were slain. Koresh connected this with the first attack. When asked how long he would resist, Koresh refused to surrender because Revelation 6 verse 11 told him to remain in the compound for a little season. The prospect of death did not deter the group because they expected others to be killed just like the passage predicted. From their perspective, the scene was unfolding just had God had scripted it. And we could go on and on of other movements of people that have tried to take revelation and assume that it's talking about future events, applying that, those thoughts, those, that understanding, that interpretation of revelation into today's events only to be disappointed I mean, we could go through uh, leader after leader of people who thought, uh, of those who thought that someone might have been the Antichrist, whether it was 
Hitler or Stalin or somebody else, but there's no shortage of connecting Revelation to current events in history. Revelation is a confusing book to be sure. Martin Luther, the reformer in the 16th century, said, I find this book to be neither apostolic nor prophetic. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. Martin Luther wanted it to get out of the Bible. He didn't want any part of it. And maybe you've tried to read it, and you agree with Martin Luther. If this could just not be in the Bible, it would be so much simpler. But let's talk a little bit about the context. If I were to show you this, big tent sale, what questions would you have when you looked at this advertisement? What's it selling? But imagine someone who wasn't in this culture. What would they read when they look at that? They're selling tents. Right? There's a big tent sale, 60 to 70, 80% off. If you look at the dates, unfortunately, we just missed it. You guys missed out on your summer tent sale. But you would look at this and you'd say, there's a big tent sale. But in our culture, we know what tent sales are. And we would say, you know, is it a, you know, are they, who's having it? You know, is the brick having it? Are they selling couches? Are they selling furniture? It's leaving out some information. But the only reason that we can interpret what this is saying is because we have a cultural understanding of what this is. Now imagine the cultural distance over 2,000 years, and we've talked a lot about context in this series. Part of the reason we've done this series is to provide some biblical context so that we can know how to read and apply scripture in our lives appropriately. The context in which the book of Revelation is happening is critically important to understanding what it's all about. What we think about the end impacts how we live. And so if you are thinking about the end and interpreting revelation about the end, as we saw in those stories, it impacts how people lived in the present. The word apocalypse is where we get the word revelation from. It's a Greek word meaning revelation. And what this word means is an unveiling or an unfolding of things not previously known and which could not be known apart from this unveiling. Have you guys seen The Wizard of Oz? Some, some of you? Uh, come on, let's, how many of you have seen The Wizard of Oz? Okay, everybody over 30 put their hands up. So at the, spoiler alert, at the end of the movie, you know, this great wizard, the curtain gets removed and it turns out that he's nothing. Right? He's a nobody. This is kind of what revelation means. It's the removal of a veil, the removal of a curtain so that you can see what is actually happening. So it's much like the scene in The Wizard of Oz. This is what the book of Revelation is. It is looking beyond the physical realm into the spiritual realm to have an understanding of what is happening. This is written as a part of a bigger genre. So the Revelation is not the only apocalyptic literature. There was lots of different apocalyptic literatures at the time. And apocalypses are generally written in a narrative form in which there is a revelation of a transcendent reality that is given by an angel or someone from that reality to a human. Usually the revelation unveils a supernatural world and points to salvation at the end of time. Apocalypses 
assume that the world of ordinary life is mysterious, so revelation comes from a supernatural source. They tell readers about a hidden world of angels and demons. Those activities affect human life and about final future judgment of the wicked. And that's the type of literature that we find in the book of Revelation. Lastly, people generally wrote apocalypses to assure readers that God would be faithful despite conditions of evil in the present age. And to encourage readers to remain loyal to God rather than giving in to powers that oppose God. Apocalyptic writers were concerned about the future realization of God's purposes, but exhortation and assurance seemed to have been more important than simple prediction of future events. Historical study is often focused on the way Revelation urges Christians of the first century to resist Roman imperial authority. The point of Revelation is that it emphasizes that, that Jesus is God and Caesar is not. That is the context. It was written specifically to seven churches in Asia Minor. It was written from a small island by a guy named John who was there for preaching that very idea that Caesar is not Lord, which is not a popular thing to say in this time. Revelation is a prophetic interpretation of what happened in Rome in the 60s and 70s. The city burning, plagues, economic crisis, crop failure in Egypt leading to widespread famine, the destroying of the temple that would happen in 70 AD. And in 70 AD, there was 500 Jesus followers a day being crucified. So this is the context of the last book of the Bible. And so when we go at the book of Revelation with the, with the understanding of this context, I want to talk a little bit about maybe some widely misunderstood points in Revelation because we don't have time to really get through it. Let's talk about the mark of the beast. Nice Father's Day topic. <laughs> 666. The Antichrist. Man, there's been... So much made of this. In Revelation 13, it talks about this. It says, He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So John is telling us wisdom is needed. There's a calculation that needs to happen. If you can understand it, solve the riddle. And many think John was writing like this because for his letter to get out of prison, it probably had to pass through the Roman guards. So John writes, this calls for wisdom. Those who have insight calculate the number. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Daniel had seared into Israel's consciousness the sense of empire as beasts. This is not a new idea in the Jewish world. John alludes to this naming the beast 666, the number of the beast who began the long drama of killing the people of Jesus. Sorry to burst the apocalyptic bubble and rule, ruin all the wild movies for you, but this is really all it's talking about. The Antichrist isn't who any of us grew up maybe thinking it is. 
Just as the letter X in Roman numerology stands for 10 and V stands for 5, so too do Hebrew letters have numerical value. Nero, as written there in, with the Hebrew letters, if you add up the value of those letters, 50, 200, 6, 50, 100, 60, 200, you end up with the number 666. The beast in the Roman Empire more precisely, or the beast is the Roman Empire most precisely, but it is personified with Nero Caesar, the one who was persecuting the early church. Of course, this took a bit of calculation to figure it out as John warned, but it would not have been too far of a stretch for those at the time to understand this. It refers to getting a mark on your right hand and your forehead. And the supermarket of the day was called Agora. And before you went into this Agora, into your local superstore, you would have to pledge allegiance, so to speak, to Caesar. They needed to give allegiance to Caesar. This pledging of allegiance was often done by dropping a pinch of incense before an image of Caesar or by giving some other recognition before entering the market. And after affirming allegiance to Caesar, then you could go on your way and get your pizza pops. Which created a little bit of a problem for the early church. How badly do I want my pizza pops? Do I say Caesar is Lord or do I actually believe that Jesus is Lord? And when the difference between those two might mean my very own life, that's a tough situation to navigate. And so this is where we have John writing this letter to encourage the first century church on how to align under the lordship and kingship of Jesus in such a volatile culture. Now maybe not as uh, widely talked about, but something that's equally misunderstood is Revelation talks about this number, 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7. And this is what it says, Revelation 7 verse 4, and I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all, from all the tribes of Israel. And it goes through each of the tribes, 12,000 in each tribe. And it says, after this, I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. So and I think this, talking about this number just briefly gives us a, an example of how one would read Revelation. Revelation from start to finish is symbolic. It's using symbolic language. It's taking imagery from your Old Testament and from Roman culture and speaking in symbolism. Numbers are symbolic. The pictures are symbolic. And often when Revelation is really mishandled, it's when people choose, pick and choose what's symbolic and what's literal. The reality is the whole, the whole book is a symbolic, metaphorical book. And there's been movements that has basically said there's only 144,000 people that get, get into heaven. And those people were already picked. So, sorry, you didn't make the cut. But this is not what is happening. 144,000 is the 12 multiples of 12,000, 12,000 representing uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And in Jewish literature, when you add a thousand onto something, it makes it just go to this massive scale. And 12 is a symbolic number talking about wholeness and perfection. And so what's happening in Revelation, when John talks about the number 144,000, what he's saying is all of God's people, all that are in Christ, all that have been called by Christ, are now together. And if you take it literally, John actually counter, uh, contradicts himself in verse 9 because it says, after he saw the 144,000, he says, I saw a vast crowd too great to count. So which was it, John? 144,000 or a crowd too great to count? Make up your mind. He doesn't because he's saying the same thing. This vast crowd, too great to count, 144,000, completion, wholeness, God's people through all time gathered together from every nation, tribe, and people in language standing in front of the throne before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their great hands, and they were shouting, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. So this is the type of symbolic work that John does throughout the book of Revelation. Let me, do, let me talk about one more, and then we'll move on to something different. The lion and the lamb. We see these two animals juxtaposed in the book. And it comes from Revelation 5. It says, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing in the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? The, the, the scrolls representing God's will, God's plan for the earth. And the response, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open it and read it. And this is... John's response, then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. Do you ever look at our world and wondering, how is this ever going to be made right? You know, this, this is the situation that John is in. And John is told that no one is able to open this. No one is able to actually move this forward. And so he begins weeping. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the line of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as, it, as if it had been slaughtered. So John is told one thing and he sees another thing. And that pattern happens a number of times in the book of Revelation. It just happened in the 144,000 where John was told about the number and then he looked and he saw a great multitude. Now we, we, we see that he's told about this lion and then he looks and it's not a lion, it's actually a lamb. The lion is the symbol both of ultimate power and supreme royalty while the lamb symbolizes both gentle vulnerability and through its sacrifice the ultimate weakness of death. Other than this instant that's talking about a lion, there's actually no lion in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the slain lamb. What John is communicating, that Jesus is victorious like a lion. 
He's ultimately powerful. But his way to power is not the worldly way to power. It's not through coercion. It's not through military might. It's actually through suffering, through his death and resurrection. And there have been, through the years, plenty of lion Christians, people who expect Jesus to show up like a lion. I'm sure this is what the first century church was hoping for that Jesus would show up like Caesar, but just be more powerful than Caesar. What John is saying, that Jesus is victorious. He is more powerful than Caesar, but the way to his power was far different than Caesar. Lion Christians, they think that Jesus died for us, but now God's will is to be done in the lion-like fashion through brute force and violence to make the world come into line to enforce God's will. John says no to this. Think of the lion, yes, but gaze at the lamb. But there's been many lamb-like Christians who forget about the lion aspect of Jesus as well. That we think that Jesus just came meekly, to suffer and to die, but there's actually no victory to be found here on earth, and so we're just waiting for the day when God will make good on his promise and take us all away from this place into some other space, some heaven, somewhere else, but there's no line to be found there. John brings these two together. There is victory. There is power. Jesus does have the final word, but it's through the slain lamb. Which brings us to talk about the second coming. Hopefully you can stay with me here. We're jumping all over the place. The second coming of Jesus. It's something we talk about often. But another thing that's been largely misunderstood. When Revelation is read literally... Instead of metaphorically, when it's read, trying to look at it as a futuristic book instead of in its current context or in its historic context, how we start to think about the second coming of Jesus changes. And I remember as a young teen, and and I am not lying here. I remember praying that Jesus would not come back until I at least got married and was able to have sex. <laughs> I remember praying this. Which is a dilemma for a young Christian man because, you know, I believe that I was to wait to have sex till I got married. But yet I felt like Jesus was coming back any second. And I, you know, Jesus, do I be faithful to you? Is it okay if I just if I just go and have sex and just trust in your grace, because I, I, I don't think I'm going to get it in in time before you come back. Uh, this, this was my mindset as a teenage boy. I'm not even lying. <laughs> I've since then had sex, and uh, Jesus has not yet come back. So if I would have known... I can also remember being in small town Killarney, Manitoba. We had something called the bargain store. Anybody, 
Anybody heard of the bargain store? They, many of them are replaced with the red apple, which, uh, which is what it is now. Um, and I remember being lost in the store, which se- seemed like forever. I don't know how much time it was. Maybe it was 20 minutes or something. Uh, but I had no idea where my mom was. And I thought for sure Jesus came back, <laughs> took my mom away, and I wasn't, I didn't make the cut. And I had to stay and suffer on earth without my parents. This is, this is my thought, my tragic thought. The rapture happened. Jesus took everybody. This, this type of thinking has been popularized in Hollywood by um, lots of fictional novels there's a Left Behind series that just plays off of this whole thing on, on these human fears, but it's terrible theology. It is not what the Bible talks about at all. So what does the Bible say about the second coming of Christ? Read a couple of passages here. This is part of where the idea of rap, the rapture comes from, is First Thessalonians chapter 4. And so we People take a misunderstanding of this and apply it to the book of Revelation and you get all sorts of crazy happening. So it says, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a command, commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. First the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. When the Lord returns, this word that's being used here in the Greek is the word parousia. Everybody say parousia. And the second coming is parousia, not rapture. And let me, exp- let me explain the difference between these two ideas. Parousia does not mean rapture, but allow me to use the raptors <laughs> to illustrate. I don't, you, you, guys, you guys were surprised I hadn't gone there yet, right? I was, so I was like... I promise, after this week, there will be no more Raptor illustrations. I'm going to take at least a two-week break. Uh, so this, is, uh, this was on Global News. The airplane uh, of some of the Raptors team coming back into Toronto. Let's take a look.
So what you have happening there is you have a city and a country that loves their team that sent their team off to war against the enemies from the south. <laughs> they came back kings of the north, not just kings of the north anymore, but kings of the entire world, <laughs> right? And as the king comes back into his homeland, the people, the citizens, the diehard fans show up outside of the city at the airport to receive the king and his team back. This is what parousia means. Parousia no, I'm not talking about basketball anymore, but parousia is when the king or the army would go out to war. They would come back victorious, and the, the people, the citizens, would not just wait for the king. They would actually go out and meet the king and then usher the king back and receive him back to his rightful home. What it's talking about in first. Thessalonians chapter 4 is not the people of God being snatched from the earth to meet Jesus in the sky for him to take them off to heaven someplace. It is actually the return of Christ, the rightful king, coming back to his home and his people receiving him as king. The exact opposite of rapture. In Matthew 24, 37, it says, When the Son of Man returns, it'll be like it was in Noah's day. So here's another verse that people kind of read rapture out of. In those days, before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up, in, right up to the time of Noah entering his boat. Right up until the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Now, see what happens when you have this fabricated, fictional idea of what's going to happen at the end of time because of some, a bunch of misreadings, is we start to impose what we think is going to happen onto the biblical text itself. But if you read it plainly, and you just pay attention to what it's saying, you will realize very quickly that that's not what it's talking about. So what happened in the day of Noah? Let me ask it in a simple question. Did God eradicate the earth of evil or good? Evil, right? Or am I alone here? Is, is anybody with me? Right? God eradicated the world of evil with the flood, and he kept a remnant of the faithful. Jesus saying, this will be like in the day of Noah. The evil, sin, destruction, evil will actually be taken out of creation. Not the people of God being taken out of creation. We learned in the very beginning when we started the long story short that creation, God created and it was good. He created it as a home for himself to inhabit and also for his creation, his people. 
humanity to inhabit, to take care of. He, di- he doesn't go back on that plan. That's his plan from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. And what we see here in Matthew, in Thessalonians, in Revelation, in other places through Jesus' teaching is that God is going to redeem creation. He's going to rid the world of evil, rid the world of sin, rid the world of decay and destruction, and he is going to inhabit it as king, putting the world back to rights the way he intended in the very beginning. And this is why the, Revela- the book of Revelation ends with this idea of the new Jerusalem. Now, a couple of symbols in the last couple of chapters of Revelation that talks about the new Jer- Jerusalem. It talks about, in Revelation 21, verse 1, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Anybody like the water, the beach? So this is probably disappointing news for you. No water. Actually, what it's referring to, see throughout Scripture, and we see this in the beginning of the creation story when it talks about the waters and the chaos, right? Remember when we talked about that week one? What it's saying in Revelation is that the sea is gone because the sea represents chaos. The sea represents the underworld. The sea represents the thing that separates humanity from each other. And so even early in Revelation, it talks about the glassy sea. So it's not actually talking about is there water, isn't there water. It's just saying the sea is calm. It's at peace. Here in Revelation 21, we see where John's saying there is no sea. Evil is gone. Chaos is gone. Destruction is gone. It's disappeared. In Revelation 21, verse 2 to 4, we see this idea of a cube. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Can I get an amen? Amen. For the older things have passed away. Verse 15, the angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. When he measured it, he found that it was a square, as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. It actually says 1,200 stadia, which is a measurement in that time. Remember, 12, or sorry, 12,000. So we can come back to the symbolic number again, right? Then he measured the walls and found them to be 144 cubits. Again, multiples of 12. According to the human standard used by the angel. The city, the new Jerusalem, is coming out of heaven like a perfect cube. Is it a literal cube? Now, we've already known that the whole book of Revelation is symbolic and metaphorical. If you read through the Old Testament, you will know that the Holy of Holies... So when we talked about the Holy of Holies earlier in this series, we learned that God's presence was uniquely present in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was made as a perfect cube. And just to make sure we don't miss the point, John says that this new earth 
doesn't even have a temple because it has no need for a temple. This unique place where heaven comes to earth, where there's no separation, there's no veil separating earth and heaven anymore. They're all one as God intended in the very beginning. That was what the Holy of Holies was made to represent in the Old Testament. Now we see here in Revelation that the whole earth, the whole city, has actually become a sanctuary, a dwelling place for God and his people. And then in Revelation 22, another picture we have The tree of life. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Awesome. See, if the book of Revelation does not cause you to look forward to the future with hope, then you're misreading it. When we began this series, we talked about how God created us to live in shalom, in right relationship with God, with others, with self, with creation. We looked at the journey of sin, how sin has actually separated all of these pieces from actually living in shalom and peace with one another, in harmony with one another. We looked at the ministry of Jesus. So Jesus brings these worlds back together through his death and resurrection. He inaugurates the kingdom through his earthly ministry and through his death and resurrection. And then we see the story ends right where it began. And the good news, even beyond the good news, is that this isn't even the end of the story. That we will get to live eternally with God as he intended from the beginning. One of the worst things that happens in Revelation when you read it wrongly is the prediction that some great war is inevitable, inevitable before Jesus appears. If you believe this, it puts Christians in an awkward position because we say, come Lord Jesus, but we're assuming that the summing up of all things in Christ is going to be kind of catapulted by some global war. This is not the message of Revelation. That's the exact opposite of the message of Revelation, that Jesus is king, that he's coming home, that he's going to live finally at peace with his people. We're going to live at peace with God, with self, with creation, We don't have to worry about suffering. We don't have to worry about war because the slain lamb is the king of Judah, the line of Judah. This is why throughout the book of Revelation it talks about Jesus as the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Jesus was there in the beginning. And we learn in John 1 that The whole world was created through Christ. It says that also in Colossians. That Jesus was there in the middle. That Jesus is king today. And that Jesus will be king forever. Past, present, future. And as you reflect on your past, I don't know your story, I don't know your past, but I want you to know that Jesus is king of your past. And that no matter what has happened to you or what your story involves in the past, that Jesus, as king, can rewrite it if you let him. I don't know your present, but Revelation says that Jesus is king. 
no matter your circumstances, no matter what you're going through, Revelation encourages us that Jesus is on the throne, that he is victorious. And so that causes us to look to the future for the one who is to come, not with dread. The book of Revelation ends this way. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Let me read that again for you. Because I believe that even though this was written to the early church, it was written down for you. The Spirit and the Bride say to you, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, when I was a teen, I wouldn't have been able to say those words. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Not just because I wasn't going to get to have sex, (laughs) but because I thought that the coming of the Lord Jesus meant destruction and bad news for everybody. but I didn't pay attention to the story. The good news story is that Jesus is making all things new and that he hasn't given up on his original plan. And as I've gotten to know the true good news, the true gospel of Jesus, I can say these words and pray these words with 100% authenticity, amen, Come, Lord Jesus, come. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to sing a song together about the kingship of Jesus. It's a song of victory. It's a song of celebration. Because Jesus is the one who came. He is the one who is on the throne. And he is the one who will come. And this is good news. This is good news. So I invite you to celebrate this good news with me as the band leads us in the final song. I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment here. Uh, I have a hunch that there's some in this room that didn't know this story. that this actually sounds like good news. That this is the type of king that you would want to bend your knee to and give your life to. I just want to give an opportunity uh, with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, if there's anyone that would, that hasn't yet taken that step of allegiance to Jesus, to make Jesus king of their life, to claim his death and resurrection, his forgiveness of sins and his assurance of living with him in his coming kingdom. If you've never done that before, I'll just invite you to raise a hand. I'm not going to make you come to the front or anything like that. Awesome. 
just want to pray for you. Is anybody else? take this moment and make Jesus king of their life. If you were one of those that raised your hand, I would invite you to pray in your heart with me as I pray. And I would also invite you at the end of service, we always have prayer folks available in our ministry time. Uh, If you did raise your hand, just come forward and say, I was one of those folks that raised my hand. They would love to pray with you. Great way to kind of move into that is, you know, we do have starting point week one. That's a good first step. And that's happening after service today. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you lived a life in perfect obedience to the Father, that you became obedient to death. We thank you for your resurrection. We thank you for the hope that that resurrection brings all of us. Jesus, I just declare in this moment that you are king and that you will be king forever. So I willingly lay my life down at your feet. I willingly bend my knee. you to be the Lord of my life. Lord, it's our joy for you to be our king. You are our hope. Lord, I pray for those struggling with hope in the present, struggling to make sense of the past, struggling to wonder about the future. Thank you for the encouragement that your word brings us, Lord, that you are the one who has been, you are the one who is, and you are the one who is to come, that there's no part of our story that is outside the bounds of your love and your mercy and your grace. And so we just give our lives to you. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, our King, amen. Amen. Thank you for coming. Happy Father's Day. Make sure to get your dad's root beer on the way out. Uh, And there's some goodie bags and stuff for you out there as well. Have a great week.